Today's show is sponsored by Interpop and the Sun Exchange. In my line of work, very few people care, actually empathize with someone halfway around the world in Sudan. It's very difficult to find people who are actually willing to put some skin in the game and give you money to help change the situation there. You have to rely on uh, you know, altruism and uh, empathy. With Bitcoin, you don't. You just have to rely on people's self-interest because they will adopt Bitcoin and get into the system and grow the ecosystem and drive the value and network security of the asset up based on their own naked self-interest. That's it. And that's all you need. Money is changing. So where do we go from here? Through high-profile interviews and thought-provoking analysis, join Coindesk's Michael Casey and Sheila Warren of the World Economic Forum as they explore the connections between finance, human culture, and our increasingly digital lives. This episode is brought to you by the Coindesk Podcast Network. Just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. And now, here's Sheila Warren. Hello and welcome to Money Reimagined. I'm Sheila Warren. Bitcoin. For most of us, it was the gateway drug into the entire crypto ecosystem. And even people who claim to know nothing about digital currency know, or think they know, quite a bit about Bitcoin. So what can be said about Bitcoin that hasn't already been said? Well, as it turns out, quite a bit. I've been accurately quoted as saying that Bitcoin's price is one of the least interesting things about it. With discussion of wealthy, mainly white male billionaires and energy consumption dominating news coverage, it's easy to lose sight of what brought most of us into this space in the first place, the possibility of improving the state of the world. We've talked in the past on the show about financial freedom, access to financial services, new economic models that create more fair methods of compensation and related topics. But today, we're going to dive headfirst into a topic that doesn't hit the financial news media, Bitcoin and human rights. First, a point of clarification. Many people use Bitcoin and crypto interchangeably, as if Bitcoin were the Kleenex of the digital currency world. We even occasionally allied these terms on this show. But this episode is focusing specifically and deliberately on Bitcoin, and not as a store of value or an investment vehicle, but as a form of electronic money that is censorship-resistant, seizure-resistant, borderless, permissionless, pseudonymous, programmable, and peer-to-peer. Now, for some privileged citizens of liberal democracies, it can be hard to understand why Bitcoin is interesting beyond its investment potential. And in fact, many people may not admit this, but they secretly equate transacting outside the banking system with criminal activity. The idea being, if you have nothing to hide, why do you care if someone else sees what you're up to? Well, as previous episodes of the show have highlighted, not everyone resides in liberal political economies. And not everyone who seeks to transact outside the traditional system is up to no good. Around 4.2 billion people live under authoritarian regimes that use money as a tool for surveillance and state control. Their currency is often devalued, and they are, for the most part, cut off from access to the international banking system. As one of today's guests recently wrote, for these people, saving and transacting outside the government's purview isn't shady business. It's a way to preserve their freedoms. Here's just one example. I've mentioned briefly in the past what sparked my interest in blockchain technology. While I was general counsel at TechSoup, I became really concerned about the advent of GDPR, which is the core of the EU's data privacy regulations, and what it meant for our charitable social enterprise. At the same time, I was losing sleep worrying about what would happen if some of the seemingly innocuous data in our systems, which didn't even qualify as PII or personally identifiable information, fell into the wrong hands. One example is information we had on LGBTQ organizations in Uganda, a country that in December 2013 passed a law, which fortunately was later annulled, called the Uganda Anti-Homosexuality Act of 2014. 
This provided punishment of life in prison for, quote, aggravated homosexuality, which included things like advocating for the rights of LGBTQ people. You can imagine the nightmare scenario if officials who enacted this law caught wind of the very existence of LGBTQ rights organizations, which our lists could confirm. And you can also imagine how important a way of receiving funds that protects identity is to organizations like this. Today, we'll learn from two individuals who spend most of their time thinking about these and related issues. First, we're joined by Alex Gladstein who's the Chief Strategy Officer at the Human Rights Foundation and the VP of Strategy for the Oslo Freedom Forum. Alex co-authored Little Bitcoin book, and he speaks regularly on how Bitcoin can advance human rights. We'll then bring in Mo, also known as Sudan Hoddle, who is a doctor and activist from Sudan, currently working outside the country. He hosts a podcast to educate Sudanese youth about the importance of Bitcoin in a country where currency crisis is an everyday reality. Mo joins us by audio today to preserve his pseudonymity. But first, let's welcome my co-host, Michael Casey. Hey, Michael. Hey, Sheila. How are you? I'm okay. You know, it's been, uh, it's been quite a week as usual, as we say every week, you know, <laughs> whether it's just the dramatic awareness of vaccine inequity or something that's been top of mind for me with the family and, and friends I have in India, uh, whether it's been the most recent round of police violence here in the United States. We had a verdict that went one way, you know, followed or in parallel with a, another shooting that happened. Mm-hmm. I feel like it's impossible to ignore, even if we want to hide ourselves in a hole, it's impossible to ignore the reality of just systemic abuse that's happening throughout the world. Yeah. And the, the sheer inequity of circumstances that bring people within those situations. And I, I actually think as well, the human rights story is just is at this moment in time, just all the more elevated. The stuff in Myanmar, I mean, I actually spent a big chunk of my time in what was called Burma in those days. It shows how old I am. And in fact, many people from the activist community continued to call it Burma because it was seen as an affront to them to take on a name that had been essentially imposed upon them by a regime. And to see the almost reenactment all these years later of the same bloody scenes, I've found that in particular amongst so many other examples of abuses just to be really depressing, I got to say, because it did feel as if you know a promise there ultimately fails and we're back where we are. However, what I think is exciting about, at least, you know, we can take some hope from this about what Bitcoin and this technology offers, you know, without wanting to get too Pollyanna-ish about it, the very idea that it's a different system, it suggests a different model that gives people a new way to frame the conversation and to think about the tools that might actually get around this deep structural problem. And I also think it's going to be interesting to talk with these guys a bit about the debates that constantly rage around the Bitcoin space that tend to focus on criminality, as you mentioned in the monologue, but ultimately to that common line, right? One man's freedom fighter is another man's terrorist. There's this way of conceiving of this from the perspective of freedom that should say this, there's some certain things that need to be separated from what a regime decides is or isn't criminal. Are you a criminal if you're just trying to get around the capital controls in these places to provide money to your family overseas, or or are you working against an oppressive regime? Yeah. And I think about the concept of criminality, and to one degree, it's kind of like how I think about disability. You know, it's like we are all going to have a journey throughout our lives, and it's not crazy to imagine and to realize like how relatively easy it is for something to be defined as criminal that wasn't before. And I give the example of Uganda in the monologue, because I think that just homosexuality as a general matter is something that was literally criminal, you know, even in parts of this country, the United States of America, and really not the far too distant past. So there's all sorts of ways I hope that we can relate to the promise of Bitcoin to give us more detail. Let's turn to our guests. So Alex, I'd love to bring you in and I'd love to actually hear a little bit about your journey. How did you make the connection between Bitcoin and activism? Right? Was that 
Was it immediate recognition or was it kind of gradual that you saw the potential or just tell us a bit about that journey? Yeah, very, very slow. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. I had about 10 years in human rights as a career before I really started to understand Bitcoin. Started working at the Human Rights Foundation in 2007. Spent a lot of my time thinking about how to get technology and information into closed societies. So a lot of my work related to Cuba and North Korea early on. Also bringing activists from different countries together so they could learn from each other. I spent a lot of my career in the first decade doing that and just sort of building up an understanding of how authoritarian systems worked and you know, how are people effective inside of them and what do they need. I witnessed that great adoption of encryption basically was really inspiring to me over like from 2009 or 10 till today, this decade, when we started doing human rights events with activists from around the world around 2009, none of them used any sort of encryption. And then 10 years later, I would say 95% of them used some sort of encryption. So we've seen a great uh, improvement in their ability to be free. And that's been a tremendous improvement. And then I was approached initially, I had to search for this one day. I, I was like interested when Bitcoin first appeared in my email inbox. It was 2013 and some Ukrainian activists wanted to see if we would be able to help them figure out how to use it. This was, of course, right before Russia was going to invade in 2014. You know, these conversations didn't go anywhere. But uh, that later that year in 2014, we started accepting donations in Bitcoin at HRF. And it was just sort of a peripheral thing for us. And then in 2017, I really, in the spring, I really got kind of sucked into it, of course, by the price increase. The price is the greatest teacher, I think, over time. And then I really started to see how it could be such a powerful tool for people who live under both authoritarian regimes, but also high inflation regimes. They tend to be similar, but 1.2 billion people live under double or triple digit inflation. So, you know, and as you said, 4.2 or 3 billion live under authoritarianism. So there's a lot of overlap there, but... uh for individuals in these circumstances, having an escape to a global neutral money is, is a you know, massive boon. It's something I've been thinking a lot about also is just when you talk about inequity, for better or worse, the United States controls the global financial system. And if you aren't our friend, you're not going to have a good time. Countries like Sudan, which have sanctions, a lot of those sanctions are painful for everybody in that country, regardless of whether they're guilty or innocent. You could say the same thing about Cuba or Iran. I would say that we're in the tail end of a hyperpower moment here. But the U.S. does still control everything with its sort of the petrodollar reserve currency. And we're kind of maybe starting to see some cracks, starting to see some ways around that. And I think my friend here who's joining us today is living proof of that, <laughs> which is cool. Yeah. So with that, Mo, we'd love to turn to you. You know, a similar kind of question for you is how did your interest in Bitcoin get sparked? And was that an offshoot of previous activism? Was it the gateway to more? Tell us about your journey a bit. Perfect. Uh, thank you, Sheila. And thank you, Alex, for the invitation. Just wanted to say, Alex, now we are friends because um, Sudan in the last two years had the uprising and there is a transitional government with progressing relations with the U.S. So <laughs> yes. it's quite an uh, optimistic time. Yeah. Congratulations for getting rid of your dictator, by the way. That was pretty huge. Yeah, finally. It's about time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it, it was a gradual change from the first exposure to Bitcoin in 2015-16, where I learned about it from people like Andreas. And I, I think from generally, I was ready for Bitcoin because um, like in our lifetime, we saw currency crisis. We saw the currency, the money being changed three times. In one occasion in 2007, the money has been changed and then came back with two zeros missing. <laughs> so it, it's definitely ready for Bitcoin before I found it. Basically, yeah, it has been a journey since then. Uh, I didn't see myself going into 
education mode about Bitcoin and trying to speak to the Sudanese youth about it. But uh, I realized that after a number of years that there is an um, incentive for educating people and accelerating this uh, change. So started Sudanese uh, Bitcoin podcast is the first in the country. Start to capture a little bit of interest and discussions in um, groups. There is 13 million Sudanese people online every day. So I feel some of this number will be ready for Bitcoin. Some of these people will be ready for uh, understanding Bitcoin. And uh, that's what I'm trying to, to do at the moment. Mo, it's a pleasure to have you on here. Thanks for joining us. Many of our listeners, our viewers, uh, really are probably not that familiar with the situation in Sudan. It was in the news quite a bit a few years back. But I'd love to get a picture about the circumstances on the ground that relate to the benefits that Bitcoin brings to you. I was reading an article the other day about Islamic finance being something that I think the previous regime had imposed as a requirement on business. And any of those sorts of restrictions, whether it's Islamic finance or anything that sort of have these strict rules around them, create these opportunities. I'm wondering whether you can talk to that or talk to any of the other features of what life is like on a financial or monetary basis within Sudan. Yeah. At the moment, Sudan is one of the countries with the least economic freedoms, I would say, in the world. There is a lot of things happened over the years. Going back, the Sudanese Central Bank was established in 1960. Sudan had its independence in 1956. So only 10 years after the establishment of the Central Bank, the money has been changed for the first time in 1970. And going forward, in 1989, Sudan had one of its worst uh, dictatorships by military coup. Omar al-Bashir took power and immediately there was lots of economic restrictions. And in one occasion, there was a, a young guy who was uh, basically, he got this sentence for uh, owning his own money, which was less than $10,000 at home. So there was a lot of oppression and basically economic terrorism against uh, citizens at that time. Moving forward to 1992, they changed the money to fit their Islamic narrative, basically. They changed the money to dinar, from pound to dinar, which is meant to be the Islamic version of money. Moving forward, they came back in 2007 and brought the money back to the Sudanese pound. But in this occasion, it was missing two zeros. And that can tell you something about the inflation in Sudan and how people basically trying to catch up with this uh, insane economic reality. So coming forward, um, two years ago, there was a civil unrest in Sudan and ended up with the dictatorship finishing. But still, the economic reality hasn't changed. The uh, inflation is 340% at the moment. It changed by 10% in one month. So it's quite difficult economic. And um, I really don't see uh, how it can change from within the financial system that we have at the moment, uh, within the status quo of political class, I don't see them offering real change. That's why one of the things make me start to take steps in, in Bitcoin space, because I feel this something could provide a real answer, a real solution for the economic reality of Sudan. It's really useful framework. You know, as people listening to this show know, my first entree into Bitcoin came from the fact that I'd spent quite a bit of time in Argentina and, and you know, very different circumstances, but that constant changing of the money and the constant restrictions, it is the sort of thing that leads us to this. So Alex, I was wondering, you know, you mentioned earlier on that, you know, price is a great teacher. And I, and I think I agree with that. It really does. It gets all the attention and everything else. But I'm wondering, like, you know, having heard what Mo has just described, 
And your concept, or I like that phrase, global neutral money, which is a wonderful way to think about what this could be. How do we square that with the reality of this moment right now, where there are huge Wall Street institutions buying into this, there are these centralized institutions playing with it. There are people getting extremely rich. I don't know if you saw the, the most recent Forbes billionaires list, but the crypto brotherhood is prominent. There's a demographic there for sure, right? <laughs> You know, this whole thing seems almost incongruous in terms of those two worlds. How do you square it? Yeah, well, it's kind of funny because when Mo was first learning about Bitcoin in 2015, if you had told him that Wall Street was going to buy in, I think he would have been pretty happy. It seemed very unrealistic at the time. The fact that Tesla would be adding like one and a half billion dollars of Bitcoin to its balance sheet was something that no Bitcoiner could have possibly predicted even 18 months ago. So a lot of this... uh, new like corporate inflation hedge narrative is something that honestly we thought may come, but in the sort of distant future. The fact that it's already here is really accelerated a lot of things. Look, I think that Bitcoin is, is really, the way I like to talk about it is that it's two things. It's digital gold and it's digital cash. It's both. It's digital gold in as much as it's a store of value that's open to anyone in the world, regardless of their race or gender or ethnicity or religion or belief or nationality or what kind of passport they have. It doesn't matter. Uh, if they can get access to the internet, then, then they can receive or earn this asset, and then they can custody it with a set of words, and that's theirs. They can control it, and that is debasement proof. Like you know, no alliance or group of governments or empire or mega corporation can change the issuance. It's the same for everybody, and that's uh, obviously a revolutionary thing and huge in Sudan, obviously, where they have three hundred and thirty percent inflation rate for their fiat money, and where it's really hard to get dollars. On the other hand, it's also digital cash, meaning when you think about what cash does, it gives us privacy and it allows us to transact without a history of transactions, things like that. Well, Bitcoin can also be this like censorship resistant, privacy protecting, programmable and relatively instant money uh, if you use technology like Lightning to actually use the Bitcoin. So for me, it serves both purposes and they're very interlinked. And I kind of have this like Trojan horse theory of Bitcoin that helps me understand what's happening where you have the Wall Street people And I think soon governments of all kinds, especially rogue regimes that I really don't like, they're going to start to really adopt Bitcoin. Obviously, you see already Wall Street, Silicon Valley doing it already. Uh, The Singaporean Sovereign Wealth Fund is doing it. You're going to see more sovereign wealth funds do it. These people don't care about human rights or freedoms at all, one bit. And that's the refreshing thing. In my line of work, very few people care, actually empathize with someone halfway around the world in Sudan. It's very difficult to find people who are actually willing to put some skin in the game and give you money to help change the situation there. You have to rely on uh, you know, altruism and uh, empathy. With Bitcoin, you don't. You just have to rely on people's self-interest because they will adopt Bitcoin and get into the system and grow the ecosystem and drive the value and network security of the asset up based on their own naked self-interest. That's it. And that's all you need. And that alone improves things for Mo and all of his friends in Sudan. So it's kind of like this really refreshing thing where finally we kind of have like a human rights tool or a system that, again, does not require empathy or altruism. It it literally runs on greed. It runs on people wanting to get rich. And it's like that Trojan horse. You're looking from those city walls and you're like, wow, what is that thing? Oh, let's bring it inside. It'll give us power. And then it's packed with all this like freedom cypherpunk technology. So that's kind of the way I think about it. I love that notion of greed-driven, you know, access to freedom, right? I think that's just, it's just really powerful. Mo, I'm curious if this frame resonates with you. And, and I'd also just love to hear examples of how 
you're encouraging the use of Bitcoin it kind of almost in everyday life. Are you using it in this fashion? There's a lot of criticism that, oh, nobody's actually using Bitcoin and you know people are just kind of holding it and trying to make a lot of money off it, whatever. And I'd be curious to, to have you give the lie to that and give us examples of, of how it's actually serving you and the people that you speak with. No, definitely. There is multiple uses. I can give you, for example, sometimes we had problem with money transfer for so, so long because of Sudan was one of the countries as classified by the U.S. as supporting terrorism. So there has been years that you had to actually meet somebody to give the money to take it to Sudan, or it's impossible to make a, a bank transfer, anything like that. Uh, the other things like in case of emergency, I remember uh, my sister had emergency back home and uh, just needed to send money immediately. Bitcoin was a saver because somebody was interested to have the Bitcoin transfer and then basically give them the money to go for a treatment. So a number of occasions, it has been really useful. I talked to my family about it. My younger brother is a, a fresh uh, dentist, graduate dentist. Basically, um, he's starting his own clinic at the moment and I'm teaching him how to avoid the inflation by saving a little bit of his income into Bitcoin. And that has been working very well. So the examples are a lot, but there is definite real applications in everyday life. And it's really helpful. I feel uh, many people who started understanding Bitcoin, they start to get interest and start having like uh, accumulation little by little, because with 10% inflation rate, it's, it's really impossible to save. So 10% monthly. Monthly. Yes. Yeah. So there is a saying for drivers in Sudan, they say gasoline in the tank, not money in the bank, because... Huh. They know basically they're losing value every month. That's what's happening at the moment. The reason I was excited to help Mo come on is when I was talking to him maybe a year ago, he said something quite beautiful. And he said that, you know, in my life, we've had a complete economic devastation and political devastation in my country. And 10 years ago, he said he could have never imagined not only having a democratic transition, but also a transition to a money that was not controlled by the government. And now he's like witnessing both. He was just kind of blown away. So this conversation will end up being positive. <laughs> yes, definitely. I, already, I think we already see the trend line there, right? Meet Interpop, a super team redefining the future of NFTs and fandom. From comics and trading card games to digital collectibles and everything in between, they are building the architecture of an entirely new landscape of fandom using technology built on the Tezos blockchain to drive their vision. Visit hellointerpop.io to learn more. That's hellointerpop.io to learn more. With the Sun Exchange, you can easily earn Bitcoin while making a positive impact. Visit thesunexchange.com slash coindesk to buy solar cells and automatically lease them to power businesses, schools, and other organizations in sunny emerging markets. You'll earn Bitcoin for 20 years from the clean energy you generate while offsetting your carbon footprint. Get a free solar cell with your first purchase at thesunexchange.com slash coindesk. That's thesunexchange.com slash coindesk. I want to pause a moment, though, for our audience and just talk about something called the SDN list and uh, OFAC and things like this. I don't think we've ever really addressed on this show. So Mo referred to the idea that uh, Sudan was basically a blocked country. It was a sanctioned country. We've talked a bit about things like the Bank Secrecy Act and these kinds of things. We haven't really gotten into what it means when 
an individual, a company, or an entire country is put on one of these watch lists. So the most notorious of these is probably something called the SDN list, Specially Designated Nationals. And this is a list of names of people. Some people call it the no-fly list because one of the applications was you couldn't get on a plane. And there's a lot of press back in the mid-2000s, I would say, around, well, if your name's Mohammed Ibrahim, are you the Mohammed Ibrahim who was meant to be blocked from the list? Or are you one of the other you know, thousands of Mohammed Ibrahims who reside in the United States who now can't get access to something as simple as getting on an airplane? But the other side of that that didn't get as much of the press around it as the no-fly list was the idea that literally assets are blocked, bank accounts are frozen, people cannot engage with any kind of system that the U.S. has any influence over if they're on this list, if their company's on this list, and writ large, if their country has a certain kind of sanctions placed upon it. So when Mo is talking about the inability to actually access certain parts of the system, that is very literal. Like you literally have freezes on anything that kind of touches in some way, and the tentacles are quite long here, that touches a US path that involves money or dollars or whatever it is. So you can imagine how something like government-free money is so powerful, the concept to people that have experienced this, not just from their own repressive or authoritarian regime, but from a regime that is fighting that regime, you know, one could argue, right? And it was putting its own sanctions on even freedom fighters who happen to reside in that country because the entire country is blocked from access. When you really stop to think about that, it is a really an overwhelming catastrophe that builds upon catastrophe and makes it so, so challenging for anyone to actually move and transact and get supplies and, and whatever it might be, even if they are part of you know, a US-supported resistance. So this is just something really, really important to understand and contextualize. I did not have a follow-up, so I didn't mean to land that like a brick, but you know. I will actually turn it into a question for Alex then. You know, from your perch, you know, you look at individual countries, individual circumstances such as those of Mo's, but you're looking at it from the perspective of a global organization here. Can you talk to that systemic problem, right? This coin, you mentioned the dollar and the dollar's role in this. The US dollar is kind of a surveillance system. I don't know what you guys advocate for in terms of how US stances on these kinds of issues fall into this. Yeah, it's deeply, deeply conflicting and something I've I've changed a lot of my mind on over the last decade, actually. But I'll speak personally. Look, my organization focuses on helping people who live under authoritarian regimes, which I'm very proud to do, not because that democracies can't do bad. Obviously, we know they do a lot of bad, (laughs) including what I'm about to say. But we have accountability mechanisms and free press and independent judiciary. We, We just have things that people in dictatorships like would literally dream of. So it is just a very different structure. And that's why I'm very proud to work for an organization that focuses on helping people live under authoritarian structures. It's just a different like, social problem. That being said, I'm a child of the Iraq war. I, you know, I went to high school in 2000 to 2004. I, in 2003, stood on the stage as a 17-year-old and debated that we should go invade this country as a 17-year-old kid. You know, I later found out that the whole war was a lie and every possible explanation for why we invaded this country was a lie. And I've always been trying to think about that. Now, I spent a lot of my career focusing on dictatorships and the evils they perpetrate on their people. But I think it's important to be realistic and also realize that the United States has done a lot of evil also. I mean, especially for people in countries that were like non-aligned with us and that our economic system has been tremendously laborious for people around the world if they didn't have the benefit of living under a reserve currency, right? Listen to Mo's story. I mean, there's countless countries. I spoke to somebody this week who's from the Congo. I mean, he had a very similar story. Uh, in fact, the vast majority of the world's population 
does not have the benefit of a reserve currency. Uh, only 13% of the world lives under uh, a liberal democracy with a reserve currency. So 87% don't. They either live under an authoritarian regime or a weaker currency. So again, we have our own completely systemic poverty issues in the United States. But generally speaking, at least the money that, <laughs> that we rely on does not inflate very much. And there's not a lot of confiscation or bank freezing or you know, our economic crises pale in comparison to what people like Mo deal with. So we're very privileged from that perspective, financially privileged. It's difficult because a lot of the people who criticize Bitcoin literally are in London or New York. Like it's very hard for them to understand why someone would want to use such a thing. And I will admit it's very radical. Like it definitely threatens to upset the system that we have. And it is the money of enemies and it is neutral and no one gets to control it. But maybe that's worth exploring after 50 years of a money that only one nation gets to control. Here, here. So back to you, Mo. In some of this is, is a segue from that. Right now, so much of the conversation around the role that Bitcoin is playing with these big institutions and others is to think of it as a store of value, as something that is an asset that can preserve your wealth, preserve your purchasing power in the future. And it sounds to me, and I know I've heard Alex talk just now, but also at other times as well, about how important that is from a human rights perspective, the idea of being able to just act as this protection of an individual's own property over time. But at the same time, you know, the great promise of Bitcoin, I'm actually wearing a shirt here that is from a group called the Film Annex, which was highlighted at the very first front pages of, of my book, The Age of Cryptocurrency, and a guy called Francesco Rulli was figuring out how to send money to Afghan girls who are working on this project. And it was a wonderful way to demonstrate Bitcoin as a payment vehicle to get around the patriarchal system that these girls are under. And he was able to encourage them to participate in his project and directly pay them with Bitcoin. But it sounds as if in Sudan, at least, and elsewhere, you know, it's, it's really still about the store of value, about holding this thing. How much is happening in terms of payments and what needs to happen so that, you know, do you see it becoming a mechanism for actually enabling people to pay each other in Bitcoin? Uh, definitely. Sudan has seen different ways of payment that people actually invented. For example, in Sudan, people send uh, the phone credit as money to anywhere in Sudan. So I worked in Sudan for one year. We had electricity for like two hours per day where I just managed to charge my laptop. And that was my first time in, in South Sudan. Same in Darfur. I saw people transferring the credit as phone credit and they send it anywhere and then they exchange it for cash money again. Later on, uh, some local companies start to have like a payment solution where people could use uh, like a mobile app to transfer money. So I think people will definitely see it. People already talking about it. People have sold real estate in Sudan for Bitcoin. There is 13 million um, Sudanese online doing a small business on Facebook, on Twitter, um, small businesses. Um, so I think there is already something happening. And I can see from the conversations that we started in Discord and uh, Twitter and the podcast. I think the awareness is not where it should be, but definitely there is a movement and there is more um, people asking about it, want to have more information and so on. I see it playing a huge role in solving payment issues and also avoiding the currency crisis that we are witnessing every day. That's encouraging. You know, yes. it really is. I mean, I, I think we've explored different examples, you know, about particularly focusing on high inflationary economies on our show, but it's, it's really powerful to hear, Mo, you know, your description of how this is actually useful. I think 
you know, there is the irony, Alex, that you alluded to that this is in fact like the coin of the realm for some of these regimes, right? Some of these autocratic authoritarian regimes that we are we are not in favor of, I think, as a general society yes. at the same time as it is the coin of dissidents who are the activists who are mm-hmm. kind of fighting against those regimes. And I hadn't frankly made that connection until you raised it. But it really is truly democratic money in a way, like everyone has access to it, which makes it really powerful. How do you think about that, though? Yeah, well, the interesting thing is that people who sit there and study Bitcoin like Mo and the people he teaches, they will grasp the fact that we're, we're clearly in this monetization process. We're in the store of value phase. We're still sort of in it. There's a massive technological leap that is required to do medium of exchange. And I'm playing with it myself. Like, for example, I now off my node at home, I use Sphinx to listen to my favorite podcasts and I stream money over lightning to them. And it, it actually is incredible and it's seamless and it's a glimpse of the future. And people are doing stuff like this now. But generally speaking, you're not going to sell your Bitcoin into fiat money unless you have to in the coming five to 10 years. Like we're in this like adoption phase. And what's interesting is that the dissidents are using it for a store of value. The dictatorships are using it as that like uh, sort of like censorship resistant medium of exchange. But from what <laughs> right. we understand, they're not huddling. They're selling the Bitcoin for dollars or for weapons or for whatever. From what we understand, they're not like, they don't really get it yet. They're not like accumulating. So it's kind of interesting. And for me, I've always thought that, you know, dictators will be just like Wall Street and all these other people who don't care about human rights. They'll adopt, again, the Trojan horse thing. What they don't realize is that like, if you're a dictator, like Kim Jong-un or Maduro, like you're not going to do the Bitcoin yourself. Like it's too complicated. So you hire a whole bunch of people to do it and then they all have to learn about it. And then they all realize, wait, the government doesn't control this money. And then they tell their friends and their family, it's like a virus that spreads like that. Right. So like over time, it obviously erodes their power because the power in politics is largely over the economy and your control over it. And it, it is eating away at that already right now across the world. Like Bitcoin is eating away at the power of governments to control their citizens. And that's just going to accelerate that over the coming decade. That's kind of how I think about it. But the payment question is a great one. And I think it's worth bearing on because it's going to be very expensive to do payments with main chain Bitcoin. I mean, we had this like issue with this huge part of the network falling out of hash rate. And it was like $40 to send a transaction. If you wanted to right now, you could wait and pay like a dollar if you were patient. But I think in two or three years, it'll be in dollar terms, at least hundreds of dollars to send a Bitcoin transaction. So that's why it's so essential that we work on educating people about lightning, how it works. And like also the UX behind it is still nowhere near where it needs to be. Like in my opinion, and I don't know about Mo, because he's also educating folks, but the protocol is where it needs to be. Like the protocol itself is sufficient. It's just the app layer is not good enough yet for like emerging markets mobile use. Like, like it's, it's there for main chain Bitcoin, for sure. These open source wallets are incredible. Like the moon wallet's amazing and so easy to use. But as those fees start to climb in your local fiat currency, you're not going to be so eager to make small payments. So that's why we really need the lightning piece. It is something that comes up a lot, obviously, the, you know, there's the scalability, the failure and lightning as a solution. And it's great to hear that, you know, you feel like the protocol is there. Uh, yeah, we're kind of almost where we were with, you know, mainnet payments uh, on Bitcoin some time back and all those wallets have improved, but they're really now about store of value simply because, as you said, yeah. it's too expensive to do so. Which brings me back to the same question I asked you before. I just want to frame it a little differently. And that's not to say that you didn't answer it well. I love the Trojan horse analogy. But I'm wondering, you know, whether or not this is a great tool for people like Mo and others to establish economic freedom, which I truly believe it is. There is this sequencing challenge 
in terms of if, if we care about equity, right? In terms of who got in first, how much money they made. And, and do you feel like, Alex, that's a problem or, or is it something from a human rights perspective you're sort of agnostic about because, you know, at the end of the day, it's all about what freedoms exist. But really, there is massive wealth inequity in the Bitcoin universe simply because of those who started early and the, against those who don't. And I just wonder, do you think that creates problems down the road or is it irrelevant? Yeah. So I think anyone who tells you that Bitcoin is going to somehow solve inequality is lying to you. It is not a redistributionist mechanism. In fact, it prevents redistributionism. However, it does provide equality of opportunity, meaning every actor is equal in the eyes of the Bitcoin law. And what it does stop is this sort of like a Cantillon effect Bitcoiners like to talk about, which is those who are closest to the source of money benefit from it the most. Those who are farthest away benefit from it the least. And just one example is the fact that like, obviously, corporations get sort of bailed out faster than individuals in, when we have economic crises in advanced economies. But there's many, 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 many more effects than that. They also get access to lower interest rates, all kinds of things. You know, either a system where there's people in control, where, where they're going to be advantaged and make self-interested decisions, or there's a system where no one's in control. And the only way to do the latter was a fairly miraculous series of events where an unknown person or group of people created this protocol, w- which you know, survived its you know, infancy and lived and didn't die, um, and now is now very robust and has created a culture of users everywhere from Sudan to California who we're running the software, we're in charge, there's no corporation in charge, and we're not going to change the rules. It's going to be 21 million forever. That just, I think, is interesting because it, it's such a different system than the one we have where the rules can be changed to accommodate the ones in power. Yes, a lot of early entrants will get a phenomenally wealthy and they will be very powerful in the future. I think some people will be more powerful than nation states potentially, like 100 years from now. But again, the fact that no one can change the rules is just such a radically different idea from the, the world we're living in. We're like, always, it's a small group of people who control everybody else. You know, not anymore. So just sorry, I got another thought on that. It's an analogy. We can't change the protocol. And we, we had a great discussion in one of our meetings here about how despite all this emergence of institutions, it's one of the great things about Bitcoin this was Jill Carlson that I was remembering here, Sheila. Even if you're getting all these institutions coming in and they're shifting things at the on and off ramp level and they're making you know, regulations tighter that suit them, but don't suit the small guys, at the end of the day, the beauty is this protocol, it doesn't change. And therefore, it's the capacity to build apps and things on top of it that really matter. But you could flip that around and you could say that what power comes from that wealth that allows you, even if you can't change the protocol, to really manage everything else that goes on around it in terms of you know, apps and everything else. I don't know if that's a legitimate concern, but if it is, what do we do to mitigate it and ensure that all the other elements that go into the broader ecosystem of, of the Bitcoin universe are skewing toward equal opportunities, at least in terms of access. There's always going to be billionaires. Like That's just the way it is. But what we haven't had is an ability for the bottom 80% to actually control their financial destiny. And now they can, right? So, I mean, yes, it matters how much money you have, but like it doesn't matter to the eyes of the Bitcoin protocol how much money you have in as much as you can participate in the same you know, premium savings technology as everybody else. So no matter how much you're earning, you can protect it. That has not been the case before. And the digital democratization of it is, is a rather striking feature of this thing, but it improves the lot for everybody, including the super rich. But you also have to realize that like, 
not everybody who got in at Bitcoin in the beginning has held. That's a big misconception. A lot of the people who got in early, like Julian Assange, he had like 100,000 Bitcoin way back when. I don't think they have any more, very little Bitcoin left. Let's put it that way. They're like desperately fundraising. Because what happens is when you acquire the Bitcoin at a particular price level, you have a psychology of it and you're like, okay, well, I need to spend it. It's my bank account. In his case, you know, he couldn't use Visa. So they, had, they literally had to spend the Bitcoin to like do stuff and go to conferences back in 2010, 11, 12, which is when like I met him back, back then. And they were spending it then. They didn't know it was going to go up by, you know, whatever it was, 50,000%. They had no ability to know that. Of course, there's regrets and stuff, but yeah, I was going to really pass this to Mo and say, Mo, you know, from the standpoint of someone uh, who has a very different perspective on this, right? I'd really be curious to know how you feel about all of this. Is it something that you spend any cycles thinking about, right? The fact that the very tool that is offering financial freedom is also making some people extraordinarily wealthy. Is that something that, that you give any thought to, or is it just kind of irrelevant to how you think about Bitcoin and its relevance to your particular, uh, your compatriots' particular situation? Yes, I think I also thought about that not everyone in Sudan even um, have internet access. So I will be um, thinking about the 13 million who are lucky to have their internet access and to be uh, plugged in this global internet world. But I think also that Bitcoin created also a fairer opportunity because anyone from the 13 million online could have a piece of uh, Bitcoin if they see this opportunity. So there is two sides to it. But um, maybe it's a bit idealistic to think that there will be no downside. I think, yes, maybe there, there will be some downside to any technology, but also the fact that if, if it allow the 13 million who have internet access, who are uh, suffering from uh, economic problems to have a piece of it. And then this is uh, balance the downside, I think, you know, because if Wall Street buy and hold, then it's good for the student in Sudan who bought a fraction of Bitcoin for $10 or $50. So he is part of the success then. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah. I think this is a good thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's like everything. It's complicated, right? So I'll tell you what my perspective on this is, is I, I'm not so worried about within the system. It's my concern is you've seen this kind of with the philanthropic industrial complex, which we talked about on an earlier episode of the show, which is what happens when people make a tremendous mind-blowing amount of money. They then exit whatever it was they were up to. They then decide to dabble in whatever else it is. And the next thing you know, you have an education infrastructure that's being financed by billionaires and the government is stepping out. And this is true in parts of the world. This can be a positive thing. You can have people that have the altruism Alex referred to and go in and build these systems in a way that actually is beneficial to people. Or you can have people that are engaging in what can sometimes be somewhat dangerous experiments. And you can have support of that from politicians who then remove budget, right? And you wind up with other flaws in systems or other inequities that are built into systems because they're funded by people that have a particular agenda. So just having witnessed this and seen this happen in other parts of our society where we had oil billionaires, right? Who came in and then you had foundations operated in certain ways. And over time that improved, certainly to be fair, uh, but you still had this kind of early inception where there was kind of untouchable money that could do whatever it wanted outside of the bounds of a lot of regulation because it was charitable dollars and it was philanthropy. So this is sort of where my, my mind sometimes goes with this. But I tend to think right now, 
the benefit outweighs the cost and the cost remains somewhat theoretical in terms of some of these potential outcomes. And I'm aligned more and I'm really impressed. It made a big impression on me about Alex and Mo, you know, the way that you frame this and the real active benefit that this particular innovation is providing today, not 10 years from now, not two years from now, but actually right now on the ground. So I want to thank both of you for educating us and our listeners about the active use of Bitcoin and how it is really proving and providing benefit to people today. This is not theoretical. It's not something that we have to wait a year, five years, 10 years for really helping us frame and contextualize this particular innovation and why it's important. It's Alex Gladstein, Human Rights Foundation, and Mo, also known as Sudan Hoddle, who has a podcast, uh, Sudan Hoddle, and you can follow him on Twitter as well and get access to that podcast there. Thanks so much to all. And stay tuned. Next week, we'll join you with another episode of Money Reimagined. Thank you so much for having us. It was a lot of fun. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. You've been listening to Coindesk's Money Reimagined. This episode featured Michael J. Casey, Sheila Warren, Sudan Hoddle, and Alex Gladstein. Our theme song is Shepherd, and this episode was edited by Michelle Musel, produced and announced by Adam B. Levine. Have any questions or comments? Send us an email at podcast at coindesk.com or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. And stay tuned for our next episode where we'll zoom in on innovation within Nigeria. From all of us at Coindesk and the Money Reimagined team, thanks for listening. We are witnessing the greatest paradigm shift in finance in modern history. Join thousands of newsmakers and influencers talking the future of money at Consensus by Coindesk. A live virtual experience of leaders, change makers, virtual reality meetups, keynotes from Ray Dalio, Gary Vaynerchuk, and much more. Get an up-close look at the boom in crypto, the surge of institutional investment in Bitcoin, the NFT mania, the breakneck innovation in decentralized finance, and the coming disruption from central bank digital currencies. Coindesk Reports listeners can visit events.coindesk.com and use the promo code REPORTS to save $25. Join us May 24th through the 27th for Consensus by Coindesk. Register today at events.coindesk.com. We'll see you there. We'll see you there.